Father, we read in Psalm 28 that David, the shepherd king, he affirms who you are in our life when he says, the Lord is the strength of his people. And then he prays this, be their shepherd and carry them forever. Father, that is our prayer this morning. That is my prayer this morning. You are the strength of your people. And so would you carry us forever as our shepherd? Would you do the pastoring work this morning? Would you do the shepherding work this morning? Would you even do the preaching work this morning? As our God and our King, yes, as our shepherd, our loving shepherd. And would you do it by your word, through your spirit, for our strengthening and nourishment and for the greater glory of Jesus who through his cross has made all of this possible. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm excited to get into the passage of Scripture for us this morning, Matthew 9, 1 through 13. Do indeed keep a Bible out this morning so you can follow along as the message unfolds, but excited to get into it because... This passage, really these two stories, the story of the healing of the paralytic in the first part of the passage, and the calling of Matthew, these stories, this one passage, comes together in a way that gets us right to the heart of Jesus' ministry. Not that healing is at the heart of Jesus' ministry, despite what we said two weeks ago about the importance of Jesus, our healer, that's not the heart of Jesus' ministry. Healing is part of the whole of Jesus' ministry, to be sure, but it's not the heart of Jesus' ministry. The forgiveness of sins is what is at the heart of the ministry of Jesus. So take a look at your Bible. Both stories you see there revolve around Jesus' desire, Jesus' ability to forgive sin. So notice verse 6 in the first paragraph there, it is the climactic declaration of the passage. It's the high point. The healing's not the high point. The healing is the context for Jesus to say what he says in verse 6 about the forgiveness of sins. And what does he say? Look there, verse 6, quote, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Or take a look down at the end of the next paragraph, the last verse, verse 13, again the theme of the forgiveness of sins, quote, where Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, says this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So right at the heart of the ministry of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, in fact, the forgiveness of sinners, to be more precise, this is right at the heart of the ministry of of Jesus and right at the heart of these two passages. But these stories also, you might say, take us into the throes of battle with Jesus. Why do I say that? I say it for this reason, because up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he's been about preaching and teaching and healing, and he's been drawing crowds, and everything's been going pretty well, and people seem pretty excited about this authoritative teaching and this miracle-working healer. Everything seems to be going well. But at chapter 9, verse 1 in Matthew's gospel, something changes. Controversy begins. The religious elites 
They begin to take issue with what Jesus is doing, or rather, what Jesus is saying, or even more precisely, who Jesus is claiming to be. And so the controversy that starts here in chapter 9 and runs its way through the rest of Matthew's gospel, it's not controversy over healing. Everybody likes healing, even the religious elites. And it's not over the fact of the forgiveness of sins. Everybody likes the idea of the forgiveness of sins, even the religious elite. No, the controversy erupts over what Jesus says or who Jesus claims to be. Or what Jesus claims to have. And what is it that Jesus claims to have in this passage? Verse 6, Jesus claims to have authority to forgive sins. That's the issue. That's the provocative claim that sends the religious establishment into a tizzy or really a fury so that They leave the scene of the crime, as it were, here in chapter 9, and they go away figuring out a way to plot to get Jesus crucified for making such an audacious claim. But notice in the first paragraph in our story, the healing of the paralytic, look there. It's interesting the way Matthew tells this story. It's as if there may not have even been a healing of the paralytic at all in the way Matthew tells the story. Look there in your Bible. Notice how they bring the paralytic to Jesus, and Jesus gives to the paralytic what he ultimately needs. Not the healing of his body, but the forgiveness of sins. So look at verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And you kind of get the impression from just reading that and the way the story's starting to unfold that Jesus would be content to forgive the person's sins and leave him on his paralytic mat. But of course, the religious elite in the room, the the theologians in the room, they hear something strange, right, in what Jesus says. It's as though Jesus is claiming to have the right or the prerogative, the authority to forgive sins. And so, Look at verse 3, and behold, verse 3, some of the scribes, and if you want to know what scribes is, just think seminary graduates, right? Some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. We know for certain. They taught us this in Theology 101. Blaspheming is not a word we throw around in our modern secular context, but of course, in the first century, among Jewish communities in the first century, that was like a really serious charge. And it was a charge they lay at Jesus' feet here, and it's a charge they're going to lay at Jesus' feet a little bit later in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, during his trial. The blaspheming culminates at his trial when he is handed over to be executed because he's claiming to do what only God can do. But Jesus, notice verse 4, what it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? The answer, of course, is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because No one can object. You can't prove it one way or another if someone else is 
sins are forgiven. But notice what Jesus does in the passage. Jesus, in effect, says, I'm going to heal this paralytic as proof. Indisputable, public, unobjectionable, undeniable proof that I have the authority to forgive sins. And so look at verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said now to the paralytic, he was saying that to the scribes, now he turns to the paralytic mid-sentence, as it were, and says this, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then Matthew tells us, and the paralytic rose, and he went home. You see, Jesus isn't making big claims in this gospel that he cannot back up with big, big actions. He's not playing around. He's not bluffing. Even when his bluff is called, he is not bluffing. Big words and big actions. He not only has the power to heal, he has the authority to forgive sins. And in fact, check it out. In this passage, the power to heal is just to demonstrate and put on display the fact that he actually has the power or the authority to forgive sins. And so you see with these words of Jesus, what happens is he is entering into the throes of battle with the religious establishment at that time. Here the controversy begins. Jesus as a healer, that's fine. It's an objection. Well, it's kind of cool. Jesus as an authoritative teacher, that's pretty cool as long as he gets his theology right. That's kind of fine. But Jesus is the one who has authority to forgive sins. That's another thing altogether. But let me ask you this question. Why does Jesus make the point here that he has the authority to forgive sins? Why the authority to forgive? I mean, it doesn't make a ton of sense, does it, to talk about authority to forgive sins? I mean, that's not normally the way we think about the forgiveness of sins. We would tend to think about Jesus having grace to forgive sins, or Jesus having mercy to forgive sins, or Jesus having kindness to forgive sins, or Jesus having patience to forgive sins, or Jesus having love to forgive sins. Why authority? Jesus' statement here that he has the authority to forgive sins is only going to make sense, y'all, when you and I understand what sin really is. Sin is an affront to God. It is an offense to God's character. It is a falling short of the righteous standard that God has. That's all true. But at its heart, what sin is, is sin is this. Sin is stealing something from God. What you and I, because we're not God and we are creatures, what you and I owe God. What is that? Total loyalty? Complete faith? Unceasing adoration and worship? Continual praise? And glad and holy obedience to God. That is what we owe God. Every one of us. 
So that you see, when you and I sin, when we fall short in any one of those ways, we indebt ourselves to God. Because we steal a little bit of the glory that God rightly deserves from us. It is His glory, and and we have stolen it from Him, and so we now owe Him. We now owe Him a massive, massive debt. He holds our debt. He's the one who holds our debt. He is the one who, as it were, has a lien on our life, like you might have a lien on your house or a mortgage on your house. And as much fun as it would be to have a friend come over for dinner and start talking about your mortgage payment and then to have your friend just say, you know what, I forgive your mortgage payment for you. Wouldn't that be lovely? The bank would have other ideas for you, right? Because your friend or your spouse or your neighbor doesn't have the authority to forgive that debt. Only the bank has the authority to forgive that debt. It is a debt that you owe to them. And so too it is with God. Only God has the authority to forgive the debt that you and I owe him. And so you and I, you see, can't find forgiveness any other way other than God using his authority to set us free from the debt we owe him, the debt of our sin. No other way to get forgiveness than God exercising his authority to remit our debt to God, an infinite debt, I might add. But the scribes you see in our passage, they don't object to God having the authority to do that, right? And they don't object to God exercising the authority to do that either. What they object to, you see in our passage, is the idea that this ragtag Jewish peasant named Jesus from Nazareth, that he would have the audacity to claim to have the authority to forgive sins. And at first blush, they've got a case to make, right? At least at first blush. I mean, they're interested in good theology. They, they went to seminary. They're, they're interested and committed to safeguarding orthodoxy. And when a human being claims to do what only God can do, that's just crazy. In fact, that's blasphemous. It's crazy. You may have seen in the news recently that President Donald Trump issued a presidential pardon. Did you see this for Scooter Libby, who was an assistant to Vice President Dick Cheney back in the day? You may have seen that. And, and my point in bringing it up here is not to weigh in on what you think about that, right? But it is just to highlight the fact that one of the amazing powers that our Constitution gives the President of the United States is the ability, in effect, to pardon, to forgive. Imagine, though, if I got on my Twitter account this afternoon and I just sort of issued a tweet that said something like, I am hereby issuing a pardon for Scooter Libby. Or if I somehow got on the evening news tonight and I said, I would just like to tell the American people that that I'm forgiving and I'm pardoning Scooter Libby. I mean, if you were on the receiving end of that sort of audacious claim, you'd be like, who does this guy think he is? That's the way the scribes see what Jesus is doing. Like, who does this guy think he is? And more than that, like, this is blasphemous. This is crazy. This is an outrage. This must stop. But of course, it's not the way Jesus sees it. And why not? Because Jesus knows who Jesus is. And who is Jesus? Well, who does he claim to be in this passage? He claims to be the Son of Man. 
That's why he has the authority. The son of man, what is the son of man? Is that like Jesus is born of a man and a woman and so he's a human being like you and me? Is that, what, is that the point? It's just an affirmation of his humanity? He's just like us? Is that, is that the connection? Is that the point? What does it mean to say he is the son of man? Which, by the way, is Jesus' favorite self-designation. More than Messiah, more than Son of God, more than Savior, more than all the rest, Jesus goes to Son of Man to describe himself over and over and over again in the Gospels. What is the meaning of this? Is this just an affirmation of his humanity? The real meaning of the phrase comes from a different place. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Daniel chapter 7 in particular. And if you go back in Daniel chapter 7, what you find there is Daniel the prophet, right? He has this dream, and in the dream he has a vision, and what he sees in his dream and his vision is this human figure who's riding on clouds, coming to the Ancient of Days. And, and from Daniel's perspective in the Old Testament, when someone is riding on clouds, it is a God being. It is a God-like figure. Human beings walk on the ground. They don't ride on clouds. Only gods ride on clouds. So Daniel sees this human being riding on these clouds, and it is this amazing mixture of a God being with a human being. And this is what we read Daniel sees in his vision, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There's the phrase in Daniel 7, one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given, listen to this, dominion, the Son of Man was given by the Ancient of Days, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man, Daniel 7. This is a divine and human figure. This is the ancient of days in human form, you might say. This is the one to whom belongs all glory and honor and praise and dominion and authority. Even the authority to forgive sins. By the way, note to self, by the way, like there is no higher claim Jesus makes or the Bible makes for the deity of Jesus than that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. When it says, I am the Son of Man, it's not simply saying, I was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried as a human being. He is claiming deity. Deity. He's claiming that he is nothing less than God himself in flesh. And so talk about a provocative claim. Just imagine if the scribes would have taken all of that in at the same time. He's handing out forgiveness of sins. And yet it explains, doesn't it, why Jesus, in a very matter-of-fact and almost nonchalant way, can say to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, as though it's no big deal for God to do that kind of thing. Of course, the scribes, they, they get it, but they don't get it, right? They see what Jesus is saying, at least in part, but they reject it entirely, and they go away incensed, and they are plotting a way to take his life. But what I want you to notice is the response of the rest of the folks in the house. 
to this healing and pronouncement miracle. Notice the response, for example, of the crowds that are in the house. If, if you were to sum up, look there in your Bible, if you were to sum up in one word the response of the crowds, I think it would be the word fear, fear. That's what Matthew says, at least. Look there, verse 7. When the crowds saw it, the healing and Jesus' pronouncement and everything kind of going on, when they saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. What does it mean they're afraid and glorify God? It's a way of saying they're like stunned, shocked. And they're saying to each other with fear and trepidation because they've just bumped into the supernatural like, whoa, like what, what was that and, and what's happening? It's a kind of glorifying God and amazement and being stunned and you might even say shocked. But underneath it is not faith, it's fear. The crowd's responding with fear. It's often the response of crowds, isn't it? To something profound God has done, that's why Jesus in the Gospels, he doesn't very readily entrust himself to the crowds. He has compassion and mercy and teaches and feeds the crowds, but he doesn't often entrust himself to the crowds because crowds can be pretty fickle. But notice how different the responses of the paralytic and his friends. You see there at the beginning of the passage, of course, notice there at the beginning of the passage, verse 2, they come to Jesus with faith, not with fear. And because of their faith, notice Matthew says, because of their faith, commentators and theologians for 2,000 years have been puzzling and, and contemplating what it means when Matthew says their faith, as though there's intercessory faith for other people, a fascinating thing in Matthew's gospel. But Matthew says he sees their faith, and Jesus both forgives and he heals. And no doubt, when he then tells the paralytic to rise and Go home, the paralytic rises and goes home with faith in his heart. Not fear, but faith. The only response, by the way, that achieves the forgiveness of sins from Jesus, not fear, but faith. But may I say this, more important than the response of the crowds here, and more important than the response of the disciples or of the paralytic is the response, listen to this, of Jesus himself. How does Jesus himself respond to his claim to have authority to forgive sins? Well, we see it in the very next passage. Notice, after forgiving sins, notice what Jesus does. He goes and says to a sinner, follow me. From forgiveness to follow me, the title for this morning's passage, that's what we see here, from forgiveness to follow me. Look at verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he immediately rose, like the paralytic, rose up and followed after Jesus. I like the way one commentator puts it here when he says this, quote, this word that is follow me from Jesus, this word is, listen to this, invested with nuclear power to tear people away from all that is most precious to them before. Nuclear power to free us from our attachments, to free us from our idols, and to turn us into fully devoted followers 
of Jesus. But who would be so audacious? Check it out, to go up to a complete stranger, indeed a notorious sinner like Matthew, the tax collector, and just say to him from out of nowhere, hey, you, follow me. Like, who is so audacious to exercise that kind of authority over someone else's life? Only the one who has authority first to forgive sins. Only the one whose mission it is to call not the righteous, but sinners. Calvary, listen, because forgiveness is at the foundation of discipleship. And so you cannot follow Jesus without first having your sins forgiven by faith. You can try to follow, but you won't get very far. Your sin will weigh you down and get in your way. It's first forgiveness and then following Jesus. Don't try to reverse those two. Particularly young people, hear me this morning. Do not try to reverse those two. Do not think to yourself, if I can just follow Jesus well enough or dutifully enough, I will then get forgiveness and get right with God. Millions try that way, but it never goes well, and it certainly doesn't end well. First forgiveness, then follow me. You see, in this passage, Jesus, I think, is offering to you and me this morning the same offer he gives to the paralytic. The forgiveness of sins, of course. To be received as we approach him by faith this morning. And so let me say very candidly to you this morning that even if you are feeling this morning like a spiritual paralytic, it's no problem for Jesus. Just be there on your spiritual paralytic mat and lift up the eyes of your heart and look to Jesus. Come to Jesus with your heart and the arms of your heart by faith and you will find him to be a gracious savior who extends to you forgiveness. Why? Because the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so come to Jesus this morning. So too, let me say that the same call from Jesus goes out to all of us. And it is the call to follow me. Not to follow the latest fads and follow your heart or follow this or that or the other important person in your life, but to follow the Son of Man who loves you and has given his life for you. You know, after the resurrection, at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, Jesus, you may remember, appears to his disciples and he says these famous words after the resurrection, quote, all authority, he says, all authority now in heaven and on earth has been given to me, all authority to forgive sins, to call you and me to follow. All authority has been given to Jesus. In his wonderful book, The Christian Mind, The author, Harry Blamires, you might know that name. He was a student of C.S. Lewis's while Lewis was at the University of Oxford. He wrote this lovely book, The Christian Mind, and he talks about how Christians need to have a a sense for authority, how important authority is in the Christian life and the Christian faith. It's part and parcel, he says, of God being God, revelation and the truth of God's word and all of the rest of it, that God has authority 
over us. But he says this reality of authority, God's authority over us, it comes with a profound and a very practical implication. Believing in God's authority, he says, means we must respond. And the response, he says, is only one of two things. Either, he says, the bowed head or the turned back. Either the bowed head or the turned back. The turned back in resistance, rebellion, refusal to acknowledge God as God and to acknowledge Jesus for who Jesus says he is, the turned back, or the bowed head in submission, in faith, in obedience, in reverence, in joy. Friend, which will it be for you this morning? In light of this Jesus who has authority to forgive sins and authority to call to say to each and every one of us, follow me, which will it be for you this morning, the bowed head or the turned back? Father, the truth is that there is a turned back, no doubt, in all of our hearts this morning. And so we pray by your grace and through your spirit that you would loosen up the grit that we have so naturally on our own lives and turn our hearts more fully to you in submission and faith and obedience. Some, Father, I suspect, will have their heads bowed now and their eyes closed and be following along in this prayer, and yet... Their backs really are turned to you, spiritually speaking. And they can only be turned to face you, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the mercy of Christ applied to their life through faith because of the cross. And so we join together as a congregation in kind of intercessory faith, taking encouragement from this passage that when Jesus saw their faith, he he healed and he forgave. We, we pray together that you would do a healing work and a forgiving. That every one of us this morning would leave this place not with backs turned, but with heads bowed. Worship and adoration, love and joy. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.